Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Pfizer has announced that their vaccine is also 95% effective. Is that a good thing or just designed to raise stock prices? The holiday break at Christmas will not be extended in Ontario. The government says the safest place for the kids is in their cohort in school. And as we exit the COVID-19 pandemic, the Prime Minister has talked about building back better, taking a slogan from Biden's Democrats down south. But what does that exactly mean? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Happy Wednesday. You are halfway through the week. You thought it was Thursday, didn't you? Yeah. I know the feeling. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show, and here's Scott Thompson! There you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Give yourself a golf clap there, Willie. Oh, 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 oh. Week number 36. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, 900CHML.com. Put a Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com before that. Also, uh, Facebook and Twitter, you can hear the podcast edition. We went out of this world for the podcast today. Uh, Because, you know, again, like uh, the teenage head, let's go to Hawaii. Let's go to the moon. Let's go to the International Space Station. Let's go anywhere outside the stratosphere. And uh, remarkable what has happened over the weekend with uh, SpaceX and NASA. So uh, the commentary on that, just to get a little deviation, a little pandemic deviation, you might say. Uh, What else we got? Oh, the phone line's always open, 905-645-3221, start 9900 on your cell. All kinds of stuff. Uh, all kinds of news breaking today. Uh, by the way, 14, uh, 1,417 new cases of COVID today uh, reported in Ontario. Tragically, 32 people have passed uh, as a result of that. Uh, the good news is that we are getting more word on uh, vaccination. Uh, Madonna announced earlier on in the week there's 95% uh, effective. Pfizer now releasing another news uh, release saying that theirs is 95% per, uh, effective. Uh, not sure whether this has anything to do with the actual uh, vaccination itself or whether it has just more to do with stock prices, but we'll talk about that coming up. Here is a global news report on that. The end of Pfizer's clinical trial shows its coronavirus vaccine is 95% effective. It also has no serious side effects and protects older adults. I'm very optimistic about this one. Infectious disease expert Dr. Isaac Bogosh calls the final results really impressive. Moderna's vaccine is also seeing similar success in its late-stage study at 94.5% effectiveness. No crystal ball here, but I think we're going to see these ones pass the the finish line. I think these are going to be the first wave of COVID-19 vaccines in Canada. As for when vaccines could roll out, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau previously said he hopes for early 2021. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, let's bring in Stephanie DeWitt, or Associate Professor of Health Sciences and Biology, undergrad, Undergraduate Advisor of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier, and is with us now. Stephanie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
So obviously more good news today. Is there really any significant change in this story or is this about stock prices and each one of these companies getting their name before the uh, before the people? Well, you have to wonder, right? Um, the, the Pfizer data that came out today is a little bit different. Their, their numbers are, are a little bit higher. So the number of people in their group that have been successfully, that have been infected, um, that number increased. So they can now expand. They had a 90%. Now they can say that it's 95% effective. So, you know, that's news. But, uh, yeah. That's about it. For the so is that is, that is is this is this more information that is suddenly become available? And I guess it has. I mean, let's be honest here. They're they're working on this. It's it's a continuing exercise here, uh, but is also a reaction to perhaps what the second vaccination got, the attention it got. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's business. There, this is a merging of of business and human health, and so they they want to get their name out there as well. I'm sure. So any thoughts to those that might think, oh, you know, I take this and misinterpret it the wrong way. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's really all about them. It's not about us. And is this stuff really safe? Uh, how does that, you know, because it is obviously a, you know, a private scenario and public scenario uh, coming together. But that being said, we've certainly heard from various people over the last six months or so that it's just unbelievable the way all of these uh, scientists and, and companies have worked together to try to get this done uh, so quickly. So what do you have to say to those that might be hesitant about all this biz that's going on? Well, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's, when you, merge, when you merge, merge money and human health, it always gets a little bit sticky. But, but essentially what's happened is these two major pharmaceutical companies have created vaccines in platforms that we have never had uh, working in humans before. And not only have they got them to work, they've got them to work with incredible percent protection. So um, that's really encouraging. When the when the first Pfizer data came out, to be honest, I was a little skeptical because it was the first time that um, we have had an RNA vaccine in humans. And so, you know, just I was I was skeptical. But then when Moderna came out with very similar results, and now Pfizer has come out again now with results that match Moderna's efficacy you know um, you can argue about whether they did it for strategy or not but the case is they both have vaccines that at this point are saying they have 95 percent protection and that is incredible uh, you brought up something, and again, I know that this can get into the weeds, especially for the layperson uh, who, who's not familiar with what you do for a living. Uh, but you talk, and I've heard this a couple of times. You talked about how this vaccine is different from others in the in the past, simply because it's built on a different platform. It's an RNA vaccine. Can you elaborate that any more in 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 common terms for us? Sure. So most vaccines that you get, what we do is we grow up a virus, um, we kill the virus, and then you get injected with that virus. So your body recognizes the virus, remembers the virus, but it's not really at risk. Your body's not going to get infected because the virus is dead. So normal vaccines are just killed viruses that are put into your body and your immune system recognizes that. Now this kind of vaccine that these companies have made are RNA vaccines so they're not killed virus. What it is is a, is a genetic sequence that is covered in sort of a fat bubble. And this 
complex is, is injected into the person. And that RNA, because it's in a fat bubble, gets brought into the cell. And the RNA makes virus proteins. And then the immune system recognizes those virus proteins. So it's different. It's a different way of getting the immune system to recognize the virus and remember the virus. That's really how what you're big, trying to do with a vaccine. How big, this is fascinating, how big an advancement is this? Um, why was it used here? Oh, it's huge. Um, and, and under normal circumstances, getting an RNA vaccine to human hands, <laughs> to hands to get it to, you know, to be something that we all yeah. get to use, it would have taken years and years and years and years and years um, to get to the point we were able to get to in months. Um, one of the benefits of an RNA vaccine is that you don't need to make tons of virus to get back to get the vaccine. Right. It can be made quite quickly. I understand. I understand it can be made a lot quicker as a result of that. Exactly. So it's much easier. uh, And then if the virus mutates, it's much easier to just make a little bit of a tweak to the RNA sequence. And now you have something that's appropriate for the new strain of the virus. So, but it's, it's, it's a big deal. Um, that they were able to get something going so quickly. Now, the caveat to that, to be frank, is that even with these two studies, there's less than 100,000 people that have been injected with this vaccine. What does that mean when it gets to millions and billions of people? We just don't have a track record with this vaccine platform. So, you know, that's where I guess some of my weariness kicks in. So should we be concerned or are there concerns, I don't want to give misinformation here, about long-term effects with this sort of, and again, I'm using my word here, artificial virus for lack of a better, artificially produced virus for lack of a better term? Yeah, you really, what you're what we're doing is we're in, introducing a little bit of the virus gene into yourself. Um, so you don't even make a whole virus. You just make the spike protein. So just one of the proteins. Um, we don't have any long-term studies on RNA vaccines yeah. in humans. We don't know what the long-term effects are. Um, so that's out there. That's a fact. We don't know. Um, so uh, w- with this sort of new technology, new way of doing things, uh, are there projected concerns? Are there things they're looking for? There's definitely. They're, I mean, they're watching everything very closely. We also don't know how long this protection lasts. The study's only been going for a few months. So there's a lot of things we don't know. And there, you know, uh, this is being accelerated, but safety is definitely the number one priority. Nobody wants a vaccine. Nobody. The pharmaceutical companies, FDA, you know, Canada Health, nobody wants these vaccines to be at risk to human health. So they're watching things very, very carefully. Um, so I think that people need to know that, like, this isn't just businesses running amok, <laughs> doing yeah, whatever yeah. they want. Um, there's very tight government controls. Um, and, and honestly, I don't know what a lot of the risks would be with an RNA vaccine, what any long-term risks I could anticipate per se. It's just, we just don't know what they are. How much does this help us with other uh, treatments, vaccines, conditions, what have you with this new technology? Oh, well, this is huge for um, any sort of virus where we can't culture the virus. We can't get enough to make a vaccine. This is another way that we could make vaccines. Um, There are some caveats to to RNA vaccines, such as storage. It needs to be kept at minus 80, which is difficult to maintain. Um, 
but but it really blows open the whole possibility of of developing new vaccines for different pathogens, different disease-causing organisms, um, with a whole new platform. So this is a big this is a game changer. It's a game changer. It's a paradigm shift for sure. Uh, so now government is saying uh, with these results that we're seeing and obviously still some hurdles to cross here, uh, but th- this could be in the arms of frontline workers and, and those that are most vulnerable uh, January to March, uh, which is you know great news in the sense that we can see a light at the end of this tunnel. Once we get to that, uh, say that March time period where you, you know they've been they've administered two months worth as much as they can and obviously that's still a logistical uh, challenge they're working on how will that change our course of action how will that change things for us or do we just not know yet you know what that's a really great question and i don't know if i've allowed myself to think that far in advance <laughs> been working so day to day on just trying i know to i'm looking for the optimism here in the sense yeah. that we can see the end of this if we can just figure out when roughly that is we can hopefully gauge ourselves to that just hang on till then essentially yes um yeah yeah so the trick with these vaccines is you need a double dose so you need a dose and right. then you need a boost and so that halves essentially the number of people who can get the first dose, the first right. vaccination. Um, so it's not going to be a ton of people at the beginning who are going to be able to get this. Now, I know that they're just going to start pumping this out as fast as they can. And because it's just, you know, RNA in this, you know, fat bubble, um, it, it is, in quotations, easier to make than whole viruses. So, you know, I'm sure they're working on how to scale this up. Um, what happens when we all get vaccinated? Well, if it, if we're vaccinated and we have protection and that protection lasts, we know how long it lasts. We know when we have to get a boost. Yeah, we can, we can go back to normal if it works. That's what vaccinations are, right? That's, <laughs> that's why we don't have smallpox anymore. And you know, you bring up a valid, you bring up a valid point, Stephanie. You know, that's what vaccinations are. We have forgotten that our generation has forgotten what that was like. Exactly, exactly. The human race has been battling viruses, well, since we were humans, but we're not used to this in our day and age, this sort of inundation or being swept through with, with a virus. So uh, once once we're protected, we're protected. What advice would you give to the, the average Ontarian Canadian who's thinking right now, heading into a winter, but we do have this at the end of the tunnel? What would you yeah, say? This, yeah, this is hard, hey? Yeah. <laughs> but we have to keep doing it. You have to you have to be diligent. You have to stay separate. Our numbers are keeping to increase and we just have to follow follow the course and there's there's a light coming. Scientists are working night and day to try to make this a solution for all of us. And good news is uh, slowly uh, coming out. Stephanie DeWitt Orr has been with us, Associate Professor, Health Sciences and Biology, undergraduate, uh, undergraduate Advisor, Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier. Stephanie, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Parents want their kids in, in school. And it's working well. Out of the 4,828 schools, we have one closed. So, again, the credit goes to all the, the teachers and the principals and school boards and, and, and Minister Lecce. But, uh, you know, the, the kids have taken a lot of time off. 
That is Premier Doug Ford speaking yesterday at his daily news conference uh, that he does not expect to have uh, schools closed over uh, for extra time over the holiday break. And uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce has announced, just announced that that, in fact, will be the case, that nobody will be ex- in Ontario, uh, none of the public schools will have an extended holiday break coming up this Christmas. Uh, they said that uh, it is being contained and kept out of the schools in these controlled environments and that at this time, time in Ontario there is no need to close the schools for any extra time uh, during the uh, holiday. Let's bring in Sabrina Nanji from Queen's Park today. She is with us now. Sabrina, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So a lot of pressure on the government to either keep schools open or close them for extra time during this holiday break? Yeah, uh, you know, I think that there was a bit of uh, confusion and we were in a bit of a holding pattern, uh, you know, just until really moments ago when the education minister, Stephen Lecce, uh, you know, sort of uh, clarified that, you know, at this time for now, they're, they're saying that an extended winter holiday for schools is not necessary. Um, and, and that is, you know, we, we were sort of expecting him to clarify his comments. This comes a day after he sort of floated this trial balloon of an extended extended winter break. It sounded like he uh, was considering uh, extending the winter break into January a little longer. Uh, there has been some concerns about potential get-togethers, uh, you know, over Christmas and New Year's. Uh, you know, the, the government is still advising against that. Health officials are still saying, you know, stick to your household um, and, and have minimal contact outside of that. But I think we've already seen that happen a little bit at things giving people are feeling a bit fatigued so I think that there is still those fears out there um, and and now the education minister is saying that that's not going to happen uh, I guess he's not ruling out something in the future but uh, unfortunately he, he wasn't available to take reporters questions today it's a really busy day at Queen's Park we have a an environmental report you've mentioned uh, you know news about a vaccine too so we haven't really had a chance to, to clarify you know from the education minister himself hopefully the premier can can shed a little little bit more light on on this uh, at, at 1 p.m. Are we expecting Minister Lecce at that uh, news conference today at 1? He wasn't on the schedule, but he has been, yeah. you know, a last minute addition in the past. Uh, I haven't had any updates uh, whether or not he'll be there, but uh, the, the medical officer will be there. The health minister will be there. Um, and, and I'm sure that they, you know, they would be privy to, to this as well. Um, I, I should add that, you know, one one part of the education minister's statement that was that stood out to me was he said, you know, the government will consider any option and, and take decisive action to make sure that they want to keep schools open in January and beyond. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to read between the lines or anything. I mean, I would like a little more clarity on, on what that means uh, when an extended winter break was, you know, potentially on the table. Uh People were thinking that maybe they would just keep remote learning going instead of in-person classes, that type right. of thing. So um, I, I do think that, you know, the, maybe these conversations are happening uh, with the medical officials and, and the education ministry. Um, for now, they say it's, it's status quo. So reaction. Uh, well, first of all, how much demand was there for uh, this extension? I mean, has there obviously many have talked about it, but is there a demand for that? What about reaction from schools, boards, teachers, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, school boards and teachers, I think they just sort of wanted some some clarity. And, you know, this 
this pandemic situation is moving at, you know, an unheard of clip. So I, I think that, you know, we're, we're about a month out from when this break would start. They would like to know because obviously there are going to be, uh, if there was an extended break or, you know, a potential shutdown, which the government says is, is not going to happen, but, you know, uh, they are saying that any, any option is really on the table. They're, they're going to want some clarity, you know, that will require, you know, directing resources in a certain way. If it's going to be more remote learning, you'll need more online resources and that type of thing. Um, so I think even for parents, too, they just really want clarity. And, and parents especially uh, have been in this situation before uh, when, you know, the government was sort of uh, not not releasing its, its back-to-school plan, you know, as quickly as people would have liked, right. that type of thing. Um, so I, I think it's, it's more so about clarity, and people might be a little bit confused. You know, he was saying one thing yesterday, um, and, and now, you know, we even heard the premier sort of trying to downplay that yesterday as well. So I think um, it really just comes down to, to clear messaging here. And again, with the situation being so fluid, we could hear something different tomorrow or the next day in all of this. I mean, he certainly hasn't ruled out, meaning Lecce hasn't ruled out that if it is needed, they will do this. That's right. Yeah, they're keeping an eye on the numbers and, and that and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I do think the government's line has consistently been, uh, you know, and they're backed up by their by their health officials that, that schools are not necessarily um, a huge source of transmission. Um, you know, it, it's not like it's insignificant, though. It is up there. Uh, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, not not like we've only had, you know, one school closed. I think currently it hasn't really been, you know, that many at one time since school came back anyway. But we are seeing a huge rise in the number of infections uh, and in in teenagers, really, like folks under 19 in that category. But, but teenagers who uh, they're, we're seeing those cases rise as well. So I think um, at, at this point, the government seems to be thinking that, that that things are going well, you know, even even though cases are surging, you know, generally and, and even among teenagers, as, as I said, uh, but but they don't want to close schools. Uh, you know, the families don't want to close schools. I think it seems like the government is willing to, tra- to trade this off for, for now. And you have to ask yourself, if you give the kids an extra week, is that an extra week to quarantine or is that an extra week to do more of what they would do? You know, I can even think of my daughter who's in university who came downstairs the other day screaming, yeah, we get an extra week. Um, And, you know, but that doesn't mean it's an extra week to see friends. So you have to wonder if it does more harm than good or if this really is an advantage. Is it, you know, is it an extra week to be off and socialize, uh, whether you're doing it in limited form or not, or should you be back in the controlled environment? Yeah, I think that's, I've also heard some people uh, raising questions about that too, you know, like, is this more accommodating, um, you know, family's holiday plans type of thing? Uh, Sure. Allowing them to go away and then quarantine. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so that's what I like. I think that was part of the fears, too, is that if, you know, we're having people socializing even over a two week break and then they come back, you know, maybe we should give it another two weeks. That's the virus intubation period, you know, and then we can all be safe and make sure we can get back to in-person classes. I think that was sort of some of the speculation around it. Um, I, I I think, you know, the government said, again, like they want to keep classrooms open. It'll be a last resort thing. Uh, we might see more remote learning, you know, if they do end up going that way. But I think for now, it's, it's not going to happen. And um, at the same time, though, I think, you know, a lot of parents are probably wondering um, why was this potentially floated for uh, you know, early 2021, if the government wasn't 
going to um, wasn't planning on implementing that type of thing. So I think, uh, yeah, they might have they might have some questions uh, to answer about that. So, again, not off the table by any means. But for now, um, they they are not they're not going to announce it. This is coming up because Quebec has moved in this direction. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, um, I mean, we're seeing uh, like we're seeing other provinces, uh, you know, watching other provinces as well too, and and what and what they've been doing. Uh, you know, Ontario does like to uh, the the province does like to you know sort of brag and boast. You know, our our um, per capita cases versus other provinces is is, re- is relatively low, and and I think that uh, the the government does like to boast its plan. You know, in in comparison to other into other provinces too. But I, I think even in other provinces, you know, parents aren't happy in, in other provinces either. There's, there, there, you know, no, no province is really, you know, committed to a 15 student uh, cl- class, captain classrooms. And, you know, a lot of, uh, all the experts really say that, you know, above that, it makes physical distancing impossible. So I think, uh, you know, with education, it's, it's a bit of a, it feels like it's, they're playing it as well, we're, we're going to wait and see is, is that, that feels like the game right now in Ontario. Yeah, and again, it was. Uh, I think we were all kind of, uh, especially around. If you if you remember back to the beginning of September when the kids were all heading back to school. I mean, my goodness, everybody was on pins and needles, wondering what the heck was going to happen. And uh, surprisingly enough, for the most part, uh, even as things take off, they've stayed relatively. Uh, stable. Um, what about the vaccine? And again, we heard uh, Minister Elliott talking this morning that uh, that they have secured vaccines uh, from those two companies uh, to hopefully start January uh, to March. Any more on that, or will they start in certain regions? Will they start in seniors' homes, frontline workers? Uh, any more on that? Yeah, they've they've sort of uh, already given us a bit of a sense of who the, the priority groups would be. Uh, you know. Uh, frontline workers, um, you know, folks in long-term care, uh, in terms of regions, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit of a mission um, to get it out, you know, to remote uh, First Nations communities uh, up north, that type of thing. Um, you know, there, there's really a lot to consider. And then the health minister did say that they've already struck a team that's dedicated to, you know, vaccine strategy. So these guys are in charge of, you know, distribution. Um, there's really a lot to consider with that. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine, it needs to be stored at, I think, 75 or 76 degrees minus 75 or 76 degrees i should say and um you know the the hospitals and the public health units they need to make sure that they have those freezer capabilities so the health for example the health ministry right now is doing a bit of a a roll call they're they're taking stock of of that type of thing there's really a lot of like nitty-gritty details to this and um you know it's coming up quickly she she does sound like the health minister did Say that it sounds like it'll be available, you know, in the next few months, um, and 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 so I think that it's really about you know getting uh, getting Ontario in place so that it's ready to be to be rolled out um, as smoothly as possible. Uh, we were talking to uh, some uh, some epi- epidemiologists, and and they were saying about how remarkably revolutionary this vaccine is, in the sense that it isn't made the same way traditional vaccines are from the dead virus. It's actually created, and then that gives them the ability to even to to produce it even even faster. What are you hearing about how this whole process has become a game changer for this industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I did hear that, you know, Pfizer was, but basically, like, you know, whatever you ask for uh, to, to their scientists and then the people who developed it, you know, like whatever you ask for, you're going to get this. Um, 
I think that, uh, like now the challenge really becomes, you know, rolling it out, um, making sure I, I, I like making sure that, you know, folks, um, do feel comfortable with it. I think, you know, vaccines typically take a very long time to come out. Um, I, I am already hearing, you know, people kind of a bit, a bit skeptical about it and that type of thing. So I think, you know, it's, it's more than just we have it now. We are getting the capabilities together. It's also about, you know, a public awareness campaign um, is also going to be another aspect of this that's important. Uh, and that being said, fascinating to find a poll earlier on in the week that said that Canadians were slowly jumping on board with this and the majority of them said they would take it. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, like that, yeah, that was encouraging. You know, the, the, our, the federal government has already, uh, you know, I, I believe that they're, you know, far ahead of the game in, in how, in their rollout, you know, ordering, ordering doses and that type of thing. So I think it's something that Canadians are definitely open to. I don't know if folks who, uh, are a bit more wary of it if if they would be willing to, to even say that as well, you know, like in a poll. So I, I think that that's, that's going to be important. We had, um, you know, the head of Pfizer even saying that he'll be the first one to, to take it. I think it's it's that's that's important for people to hear as well. You know, um, for hearing our politicians and our leaders uh, pump up the vaccine. You know, it's great to hear the health minister here in Ontario doing that as well. Uh, one other question I meant to ask you on the schools uh, in regard to the uh, extended school year that the, the Ontario obviously announcing today there will not be an extended school year during the holidays. Uh, is that hap- Does that keep the unions and the teachers unions happy uh, or did they want uh, an extended break? Do we know those answers? Um, I, you know, they, I, I think that they, like I said, like they, they mostly want clarity over this. Um, I yeah. don't think, you know, anyone's looking to, to have a bit of an extra holiday, you know, teachers are, uh, everyone's kind of in this together, you know, they're, they're working through it together with their students. Um, I think, I think mostly for the unions and, and teachers, it's, it's really, they want to know what, what the plan is, right. um, and, and they want clarity. And I think they, it's important for them to have a seat at, at the table as well. You know, along, the, the minister says that there's all these contingency plans that, that they're discussing with the medical officers of health. I think unions really, uh, really want a, a part of that. Teachers want a part of that too, because they're also they're also going to be, uh, they'll play a big part, you know, in, in how they have already. And, and, and if there are changes, you know, to, to the school year at all, they will, they will play a big role in that as well. Sabrina and Angie's been with us, Queens Park today. Sabrina, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yep, you too. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Advocacy group Autism Canada is infuriating or is infuriated over the defense lawyer's comments yesterday in the Alec Manassian trial. That's the Toronto ban attack. Uh, the defense argued that the killing can be attributed to, quote, autistic way of thinking. Uh, which has many in the autism, uh, in the business of uh, advocating for those with autism, uh, very upset. Let's bring in Dominic Chabot, Family Support and Media Relations with Autism Canada, and with us now. Dominic, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm doing great. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on this line of defense? What are they reaching for? What has uh, those that know anything about autism upset? Well, um, I'll be honest. Uh, when this was first um, publicized, I guess it was Friday at some point, um, the phone started ringing and it, it was family. You know, the, the, the families in across Canada, uh, families in Ontario are very concerned. They feel that this is just 
um, and the scapegoat. He they're trying to use a defense that is just it, it doesn't make any sense, and it's scaring our our community, our autistic community. Uh, any idea or word if experts from your side of this discussion will be represented at this trial? Not as of yet. Um, our board of directors um, are very, very involved. Um, we are, you know, taking uh, as, as many steps as we can to get closer and closer uh, to, you know, to, to whether it be a part of it or be available. Um, but as of yet, nothing's been requested. So break this down for us. What was said? What is what is wrong in, as far as as the way you see this? Well, um, you know, people with with autism spectrum disorder are more likely than the general population to have co-occurring um, psychiatric psychiatric disorders. But for the most part, evidence suggests that the most pre- prevalent um, are the you know anxiety disorders or ADHD, but not not psychosis. Um, it it you know it, it's it's difficult for us as an organization. We've been advocating for the autistic community for nearly forty five years. Um, we worked very hard. Every single member of our team and our board are all tied to autism in some way, shape, or form. So this is hitting everybody very very hard, and it's discriminatory. It 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 doesn't. It, uh, autism and psychosis should not be in the same sentence. Is this the first you've heard of this? Because I remember when this case even broke, and and you know many were talking about um, uh, websites or or social media posts uh, involved in the incel movement and such. Because uh, I'm looking what the lawyer said here in his defense uh, that while clients may intellectually understand. Uh, or while this client may intellectually understand what he did wrong or what he did was wrong, he cannot rationally comprehend what he did was wrong. How can you do that and then follow these websites and and and, and have the premeditation that was involved here? Well, that's the key word um, to me and to our community. This act is premeditated, and as it states in in you know the, some of the documentation from the case. Um, he was prepared to follow through uh, had he not have been stopped. He was on a mission. And when it comes to um, our autistic community, someone on the autism spectrum, they don't necessarily premeditate. The closest thing to premeditate that they, that they, as far as a trait that they may have, is routine. They love to know what's expected. They love uh, transitioning with ease. They like their schedule. Um, that's where they're most comfortable. Something like this, does not fall into into the same criteria in the same category and even the charge against him is first degree murder which again is still a, a charge at this point but uh, that charge uh, obviously reflects uh, intent premeditation exactly and you know i think a lot of it has to do with and i'm a mom i have to two kids on the spectrum. I have a 15-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're both completely different sides of the spectrum, but they both know what a good choice is. We always, you know, instill, um, the, the, you know, making good choices is so important. They understand consequence. They understand um, outcome. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, parents raising their children or um, our community. It, it, it takes a village. People need to make sure that, um, these individuals are provided with the proper strategies uh, to 
to know, to understand. And to me, understanding consequence is something that the autistic community is fully, fully aware, capable of understanding. And why is using this defense so harmful to those that do have autism or those that are involved with it? Well, again, like, like I've mentioned, we've, we've worked so hard as an organization and there are so many, and I don't know if it has to do with the social platforms and the media, but there are so many individuals who advocate for themselves, who have learned to advocate for themselves, who have fought extremely hard um, to, to be able to be independent and accepted. And um, something like this at this magnitude can damage all of the work that these, you know, self-advocates have, have done and all of the, the efforts that we've made as an organization to, to you know, for inclusivity and acceptance. And, and imagine, um, you know, being a teenager these days and days and, and you're, you know, you're wanting to go to the grocery store to go and do a grocery yeah. or even a little older where you want to rent your own apartment. And then something like this happens, the stigma is going to come back, the discrimination is going to come back. And it's just, it's devastating. We've worked too hard for this. Have you heard of this sort of defense being used before? Yes. Uh, there have been cases in the past, and um, you know, I'm sure that those are going to surface as well in comparison. But um, this, this is a bit um, much. This, uh, this is new for me <laughs> uh, yeah. in my line of work and as a parent, so I can't really compare it to previous cases, but there are a few in the past that they've used it as a defense, yes. What as as a mother of two that, that are on the spectrum, what advice do you have for others that maybe don't know much about this? What message do you want to get across? I think it's important to educate our kids and whether they're children or adults, if they're aware of what's going on. And if, you know, it's, it's, it's to let them know that there's there's no association, um, you know, when it comes to a psychotic break, that this this situation will not define them as an autistic and to, to to be happy and to live life full fully and to to do good you know and make good choices that this cannot be what is going to define our kids Dominique Chabot has been with us family support and media relations with Autism Canada the advocacy group is furiated over the defense lawyer's comments yesterday in the Alec Manessian trial the defense argued that the killing can be attributed to his quote autistic way of thinking and obviously Autism Canada uh, Autism Canada strongly disagrees with that Dominique thank you so much for the time and insight good luck with all of this moving forward thank you so much you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, is the clean fuel standard overkill for your tank? Let's bring in Dr. Ross McKintrick, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. The latest of his uh, columns in the Financial Post, Ottawa's clean fuel standard is overkill in your tank for every dollar of environmental benefit. From the clean fuel standard, we lose $6 of income and wealth to talk more about all of this ross mckittrick is with us now ross thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i'm fine thanks scott i hope you're doing well too we're trying that's for sure so uh tell everybody in layman's term what is the canadian fuel standard what does this mean to you and me uh, well it's called the clean fuel standard it's, it's meant to reduce the carbon content of fuel um, by a, a small amount five to ten percent and in practice, what that means, because you can't actually reformulate fuel to remove the carbon, otherwise it's no longer fuel. So instead, what they 
will um, end up doing is asking fuel producers to blend in a lot of biofuels, um, ethanol and biogas in the case of natural gas and things like that, to reformulate it. And um, there will be quality concerns that come out of that. Um, the, the fuel changes characteristics, um, but my column was focused on the cost of doing this. It's, it's going to be uh, non-trivial costs. Um, some analysts have looked at this and said, well, if the natural gas people have to comply with this, that's going to push up natural gas costs by about 60% if they really had to go through with this blending requirement. On the fuel side, it's less expensive. We already are accustomed to using ethanol. It just means substantially increasing it. So it's still going to be uh, 5 to $0.10 cents extra per litre. And so my column is pointing out um, we, we get hardly any environmental benefit from doing this. It's... it's um, it's a very expensive policy that generates um, really no real benefits at the margin, and it just strikes me as overkill. That um, uh, we already have very clean air, we have a good clean environment, and, and we've made good progress on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but at a certain point, you have to remember that it's not worth doing things if you tally up all the benefits and they're really small, and you tally up all the costs and it's going to cost way more than the value of the benefits. Um, then the rule says don't do it, even even though there are potentially some benefits. They're not worth the costs. So, uh, in your opinion, this doesn't make sense. Uh, it's it's not efficient. Who, who does this appease then? What's the reason for doing this? Who does this attract? Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of policies coming down the line where that's exactly the question. What is driving all of this? The clean fuel standard is one, but um, we're facing, um, you're going to see over the coming months and and years, very aggressive environmental policies from the federal government, from all the signals that they've sent. It seems to be driven by um, an ideological environmentalism that um, uh, um, where people just want to keep pushing the needle farther and farther in the green direction. And one of the things I said in my column is when you do that, you have to remember there's a whole lot of other public priorities that will um, be left behind. Uh, We can't keep pouring resources into green goals without it costing money. We saw, for instance, in Ontario, the electricity system. Yeah, I was just just thinking about that, Ross. There's the first example right now that would uh, certainly relate to all Ontarians. Yeah, so the government has said uh, it's going to be another $3.5 billion a year just to take on paying off these contracts for green energy and trying to get the um, burden off ratepayers. $3.5 billion a year. You think about what that means. I mean, that is a whole lot of other social priorities that are not going to be funded now. Um, And for what? We're getting hardly any environmental benefit. We don't even get much electricity from these things. And so the clean fuel standard strikes me as the same way. It's um, despite um, some of the usual false promises from the federal government, you know, this will only cost a cup of coffee per month. Uh, we know that that kind of promise isn't true. This is going to be very expensive. The fuel producers have experience with these kinds of rules. They know that this doesn't come cheap. And for what? we get? You wouldn't be able to measure the environmental benefits, but you'll certainly feel the costs. Is this a revenue stream from for government in some way? No, no, they they won't. So there's no benefit that way either. No, no. <clears throat> in fact, they'll the revenue will probably go down because um, the overall demand for 
uh, gasoline will go down, so they'll get less uh, gasoline excise tax. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Ross. Uh, everybody who's on the other side will be saying, well, what about climate change? You're, you're ignoring this, you're ignoring that, and so what if we uh, eventually wean ourselves uh, off of this? Uh, how should we be doing this? Well, um, in the analysis that was done that I, I cited, um, the benefits of reducing carbon dioxide emissions are priced in at the maximum end of the government's current carbon pricing schedule. So uh, it does take into account the government's own estimate of the benefits of reducing greenhouse gases. The thing to remember, though, is they're not infinitely large. It's not the case that every time a policy comes along that might reduce greenhouse gases, it's worth doing regardless of the cost. Um, In this case, the costs will be six times as large as the benefits. So we've certainly heard uh, the federal government say post-COVID-19 pandemic, it's the time to build back better and do all of this. What are your concerns? What are your thoughts moving forward with that plan? Um, My concern is that things that were a bad idea before the pandemic are still a bad idea today. Um, The pandemic itself doesn't change the basic laws of economic policymaking. You you still try to come up with policy ideas that do more good than the harm that they cause. And if anything, the, the COVID crisis, because it's put so many people out of work, because it's, so, it's wiped out so much of our national wealth, it's more important than ever that we think carefully about economic policy and the economic implications of policy. We should be making a priority on getting business healthy again, getting employment back up, Um, getting the national deficit down, um, this is the worst time to be pursuing policies that we know are are just counterproductive to all those goals. Will we need our natural resources revenue to get out of this pandemic, to get out of this, well, as part of the recovery? Uh, Yes, natural resources, um, oil and gas sector, they're an important part of the picture. Um, directly on their own. They also contribute quite a bit to keeping our exchange rate up because we export a lot of uh, of oil. Um, but also we need uh, to keep our energy costs down so that all the other sectors, including the manufacturing sector that rely on energy, aren't priced out of international markets and made uncompetitive. So how do we balance this as we come out of a, a global pandemic? Because there's some saying, and I'm sure, that we'll just want to shut the taps off now. Uh, this is a good time to do it. Many have said, uh, gee, look at consumption being so low, but we know why consumption is low. It's because everybody is, is battening down the hatches. So how do you, ba- how do you balance doing this effectively and efficiently as opposed to those that just, those that just will fight never endingly to just shut the tap off now? Um, well, it's the, the, the standard, um, approach in economics is, um, as much as possible, you, you look at what you hope to achieve by the policy. You look and see, is this the cheapest way of achieving your goals? And um, then uh, when you can size up both sides of it, the benefits and the cost, is it worth doing? In the case of climate policy, the whole point of bringing in a carbon tax was that the, um, the, that mechanism means that you're going to achieve your goals at the lowest possible cost. The whole logic of carbon taxes is 
that whatever emission reductions you're going to achieve, you'll, you'll get them at the lowest possible cost because the price system gives people a signal to find the cheapest ways of reducing emissions. The government seemed to believe that a year ago. That's why they brought in the carbon tax. And now they've thrown all that logic out the window and they've said, well, we're going to write a whole bunch of expensive rules and uh, try to force people, in this case, to um, use uh, biofuels and biogas far more than they would have chosen to on their own. And that's where the inefficiencies come in. And we have to go back to them and say, you know, there are cheaper ways of reducing your emissions. And then at a certain point, some of those emission reductions just aren't worth pursuing. Um, what will be the biggest challenge for the Prime Minister with this issue coming out of this pandemic? Because will this be a case of <laughs> dollars will determine what we can afford and what we can't afford? Um, yeah, I suppose that they've done some kind of political calculation. I, I'm not privy to those. Um, they might think this is going to be really popular. Um, many of the people around him are the same people who convinced the McGuinty government to embrace the Green Energy Act, and uh, they thought that would be popular. That being think- said, Ross, let me interrupt you right there. Uh, everybody knows what happened to the McGuinty then-win government because of the mistakes that they made. Is the PMO aware of that? Are they keeping that in mind? Um, well... I guess that remains to be seen. Where I think the mistake is being made, the same mistake, is they have people who are saying to them, you can go ahead and do this, you can impose all these rules, and it won't cost much for people, and we'll create all these green jobs in the process. <clears throat> we know that that didn't work out in Ontario, and and those kinds of analyses that uh, just ignore all the real costs, ignore what actually happens to people and businesses, and they ignore the fact that these policies destroy a lot more jobs than they create, uh, that reality does eventually catch up. So um, we may see a similar dynamic play out. I just hope, though, that it would be nice if um, we weren't determined to learn these lessons the hard way every time. (laughs) Uh, Ross McKittrick has been with us. uh, The column in the Financial Post, Ottawa's clean fuel standard is overkill uh, in your tank. And of course, Ross has been joining us, professor of economics and CBE fellow in sustainable commerce, department of economics and finance with the university of Guelph. Ross, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast available on Apple podcast and Google podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. So you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.